honestly, if you end up working for someone that wants you to do things that are unethical and against your code of personal conduct, you need to find another place to work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. Well, for today's episode, we're going to revisit one of our former guests, Kathy Kapka. But this time, we're going to have a little different conversation. We're going to talk about ethics. Yes, ethics. We're in a unique time, or at least a unique economic condition that we haven't been in in many years, so I thought it would be a good time for all of us accounting and business professionals to revisit ethics, because unfortunately, it may become more of an issue in this climate. I sort of had that gut feeling that it may become more of an issue, so I asked Kathy on the show to discuss ethics, and she actually felt exactly the same way. It's a good time for a practical discussion on this topic. And if you're in Texas, you you may know this already. But for everyone that doesn't, Kathy not only has a background in internal audit herself, but she is also the instructor for the complimentary ethics course that comes with TXCPA membership now. So she really is a subject matter expert on these issues. I think this interview is going to really make you think. If you do enjoy this podcast, please take the time to rate us in your podcast app or on social media. Please share it out. I know it takes a few minutes, but it not only benefits us, it also benefits others because then they become aware of the content. And of course, we really appreciate it as well. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's our discussion about ethics in our profession with Kathy Kapka. Well, hello, Kathy. Welcome back. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate having me back. No problem. Well, for the audience, you may have noticed that occasionally I circle back with a few of our guests just to see how things have progressed and and changed in their careers and really their overall lives since the last time we spoke. And for today, we have another previous guest on the program, Kathy Kapka. I asked Kathy to come back on the show for a different purpose this time, though. Believe it or not, Kathy was our guest for episode 15, which was 150 plus episodes ago. And since then, she's recorded an online ethics course for our state CPA society. And for that reason, I thought she'd be a great person to come on the show and speak with us about ethical issues. It's been a long time since I touched on ethics, far too long, actually. And I'm really looking forward to being able to bring back this topic. Kathy, before we get into all that, Everybody that's listening won't have necessarily heard episode 15 because that was a long time ago. (laughs) So if you could start with sort of a summary of your background, what areas of accounting have you worked in? How did you get started? And then give us a synopsis of your career history. Sure, Mark. As far as areas of accounting that I've worked in, uh, pretty much all of them. Um, Graduated with a degree in accounting and went to work in public accounting like Everyone did at that time and stayed there for two years and went to work in industry as a controller for a holding company and from there went to a school district and was their very first CPA they ever hired and that was a trip. And then from there I moved up to higher education to create a internal audit department at the University of Texas at Tyler and eventually becoming the chief audit executive of that function there. And then while I was there, the dean of the business school was pretty relentless after I completed my MBA 
in getting me to come teach audit team because, believe it or not, it's kind of hard to find faculty people for auditing courses. And the state, in order for our students to get credit with the state board for the CPA exam, the instructor has to be somebody that's actually done some auditing. What a novel concept, right? So I've actually literally been in public accounting, industry, government, internal auditing, and education. So pretty much done it all. Loved all of it. I tell people all the time I probably would have never left public accounting had I had a computer because the reason I left was I could not do one more oil and gas partnership return by hand and tape 13 column together and then foot and cross foot that with a 10 key. Uh, After two tax seasons, that was enough. (laughs) So if I'd have hung around a little longer, you know, but anyway... None of them I regret, and I learned something from every job that I did. I did retire from UT Tyler two years ago, right after completing my term as the chairman of the Texas Society of CPAs. I'm still very much involved with the Professional Standards Committee, the Ethics CPE, as you mentioned, my other certifications. I'm a certified internal auditor, a certified governmental management accountant, and a CGMA. I'm about certified up, but had a very interesting career and don't regret any of it. Wow. Yeah, I thought you had retired recently, but I wasn't 100% certain. Well, I'm officially retired, but this shutdown we've got going on now is really the first time I have felt retired. (laughs) (laughs) Because funny happens when people find out you're retired, everybody's got a project for you. So I've done a lot of private consulting since I retired. Yeah, everybody thinks you've got a lot of time on your hands, so they they try to fill it up for you. (laughs) (laughs) They all need something. Everybody needs help. I really have kind of focused since I retired on helping small business owners, help them set up their bookkeeping and their accounting because, you know, Mark, nobody goes into business for themselves to keep their own book. That's not what they're thinking about. And then they realize they better think about it. But, you know, not everybody understands accounting like we do. So I would just try to help them and go show them, teach them QuickBooks. And so small businesses have always been something important to me. Interesting. I didn't know that. I figured you were going to say you've done some part-time project audit work. Well, I've done that too. I've done that too because things have gotten really strict in the governmental world as far as like in school districts. Auditors now have to sign off that the person who is responsible for the financial records of the school district is adequately trained and has the technical expertise. And if they don't, you have to get somebody else to come in and look over the financial statements because, you know, it's the auditor can't prepare the financial statements anymore. Sure. They have to do it. And so I've done some of that because governmental is, is kind of my area of expertise. So I've done some audit work. I've done some small business consulting. I even helped one organization, nonprofit, apply for their, do their 990 and apply for their initial nonprofit status. And because, you know, you've seen that document. That's meant to scare people off. <laughs> they figure if people see it, they go, oh, I don't guess I want to be a nonprofit because <laughs> it's scary with all the questions, but it's not really as bad as it looks. So, you know, I keep my finger in the pot. <laughs> so. How did you end up being the person, the instructor, to record the state ethics online class? I know it's the not shorty. the only. 
the short answer to that question, Mark, is it is really hard for me to say no to TXCPA. I just have a hard time saying no. But shortly after my term as chairman was up, and then you do a year as past chair. So soon as I was finally rolling off executive board, which I served on the executive board of the Texas Society of CPAs for seven years in a row. Oh. And I finally rolled off, and I said something to our CEO, Jody Ann Ray, that I would be retiring in August. And she goes, really? <laughs> and I could see the wheels turning. And she goes, well, I have a project I want to discuss with you. By the way, I did some consulting work for the society as well. And we had already been brainstorming about how wonderful it would be if we could provide ethics free to all of our members because that would be a true value-added component to their membership because everybody has to have it, right? But trying to find an ethics provider who's willing to do that at no cost is impossible. So we brainstormed, and she said, well, you've taught ethics. What do you think about doing this? And I said, well, we have to get the course approved. I have to be approved as an ethics instructor. And to make a long story short, she said, okay, okay, we'll do that. We'll do that. And so we basically worked on it together for a year and a half with Kim Newland as well and got it done and rolled it out last April. A year and a half to record a four-hour Class. Well, yeah, you have to build the, you know, there's like a three-stage application process with the state board, and none of it's instant reply. The CPE committee has to actually approve the course. They only meet once a year in September, so we had to wait on them. So we muddled through it and got through it, and we're happy we finally got through it. And then we started recording it, and that's not as easy as it looks either. And especially for someone like me who's used to talking to people, to have to talk to a camera, I kind of felt bad for him. It took him three days in a studio to record four hours of usable material. But I'm hoping that next time I'll be a little better at it. I'm only asking this because the podcast has no boundaries. You know, anybody can download it anywhere. And so there's people not in Texas, you know, they'll end up listening to this. Mm-hmm. I've only ever been an active CPA in Texas, so I don't know the answer to this. I guess, would that ethics course be usable by people in other states as well for CE credit? You or? know, that's a very interesting question because... Not every state's ethics requirements are the same. Texas has the most stringent ethics requirements, four hours every other year. And a couple other states have that too. I believe that each CPA that's not a Texas CPA would need to check with their state board to see if they could count a Texas ethics course for credit. Now, if you're a Texas CPA and your license is a Texas license and you live in California or Florida, certainly you can take it online and get the ethics credit for it. I believe if you're not a Texas CPA and your state board won't let you count it for your ethics requirement, if you're a member of TXCPA, you can take it. And it would be regular CPE, not ethics CPE. Okay. So the answer to that question is complicated because, as you know, every state sets their own guidelines. Okay. I knew there'd be some catch. (laughs) There always is, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Couldn't resist but asking, wow. So is this class sort of a typical, I shouldn't say typical, but most of the ethics courses I've attended or taken, the instructor has some war stories that they throw in there. (laughs) 
And I do, I do too. I have some case studies that are actually from time as an internal auditor. Some of them are from my time as a faculty because you're allowed to have so much of the content be case studies. The rest of the content, though, at least for the Texas State Board, is pretty prescribed. You must spend a certain percentage and a certain number of slides have to be about ethical theories. A certain percentage of the presentation has to be about the actual Texas Administrative Code rules and regulations for Texas CPAs. So you have to make sure that you get all the content in that they require to be in there. And then the available time that is left, you can use case studies. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording in our pre-show conversation, but you mentioned how now may be a great time to talk about ethics because of the yeah. economy and I guess and the virus situation and all that. So what stresses may be put on those of us in the accounting profession because of a time like this? What do you well, see as some most of the Well, most of us remember, most of us are of an age that we can remember the recession in 2008. I worked for a state agency and we had salary freezes and budget cuts that were quite severe. Anytime there's economic stress and people are under extreme duress, they tend to practice ethical blindness and think that decisions they wouldn't normally ever do are okay now because times are really bad. And mm. so we just, as practitioners and as CPAs, we have to be cognizant that people are rationalizing their actions based on the severity of the situation we find ourselves in. An example of that is people hoarding toilet paper, really? Is that <laughs> ethical behavior? It kind of becomes a every man for himself when things get scary like this, and it causes hardships on other people. So you can debate all day long about ethical behavior during a pandemic, and you'll find people on both sides of that argument. But it's always been my experience, and I told the president of the university when I was the chief audit executive in 2008 when last time the market tanked and things got really serious, he was. we were looking at a staff reduction, and I had the nerve to ask him for an additional auditor. And he said, you do realize that we're cutting staff, not adding staff. And I said, you do realize that I'm going to have twice as much to audit now because we have over 200 federal and state grants that if we didn't go in and check what people were buying from those grants, there was going to be a problem when the final reports had to be done. And I didn't get the additional person, but it certainly made him think twice about some of the people that were cut in some of the departments. He didn't cut any of the financial services people because he realized the situation. So it's, it's pretty common that when times get tight and things get rough, good people often make bad decisions because they don't feel like they have a choice. And so we have to be careful with that. I had a student one time that about two-thirds of the way through my auditing course, came up to me after class, and of course, we'd been talking about SAS 99 and how in every audit engagement, you must have to consider the possibility of fraud. And she said, oh, Ms. Kapka, she goes, I just don't think I can be an auditor. And I was just heartbroken because she was one of my better students. I'd had her in a couple other classes, and no doubt she was going to be a CPA, and she is a CPA to this day. I mean, she's brilliant. She's smart. She's analytical. She's intuitive. And I said, oh, but you'd be an awesome auditor. And she goes, oh, no, I'm just going to stick to tax because I don't want to have anything to do with fraud. <laughs> 
I can't tell you how hard I laughed. I had tears coming down my face. And I thought, oh, sweetheart, you're in for a rude awakening. (laughs) Nobody ever (laughs) lies to their CPA about their tax return. No. So it's interesting. And a good example is I would imagine that our compatriots that are in public accounting now have an extension to July the 15th. And there's all these, you know, nobody knows how all these new relief packages are going to shake out and what's going to be reportable. But you can bet, Mark, that people are going to be looking for the biggest possible refund they can get. Oh, yes, yes. And that's just something we have to consider when things like this happen, because what did Ronald Reagan say? Trust but verify? (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) We'll have to be on our toes more, because people who normally would not lie on their tax return not feel like they have a choice right now, especially if they lost their job or have to pay tax. They just may not have the funds to do it right now. And in auditing, people have to be very cautious about, especially financial institutions, bank tellers. I've seen bank tellers who who in their personal lives got them in a situation where they thought they would just borrow from their drawer and would pay it back. And of course, the situation goes on and they don't have the opportunity to pay it back and they get caught. And it's really heartbreaking. So we need to have our radars up. We need to be cognizant of what's going on in individuals' lives that may or may not contribute to their ethical behavior. So you were talking about your one of your prior students in the past, and I did want to ask you about this because a large part of our audience is made up of, of what I call up-and-coming professionals. Either they're still in school and, and they're going to graduate soon or they're in the first couple of years of their career. What do you think, similar to your students saying, well, I want to go into tax because I don't want to be exposed to fraud. That cracks me up because I used to be a tax accountant. What do you think people at that point in their career, what other things do you think they may not realize they're going to encounter as they get into the profession and the ethical Okay. Well, Mark, you know there's no greater teacher than experience, and most of us have to learn things the hard way, and I would preach and I would teach to my students, but I can guarantee you the majority of them are going to have to learn things the hard way, because that's the way I was, but what I try to instill in them is a sense of their own worth as an accountant, and that if they think something doesn't quite smell right, then they need to speak up. And then if they end up getting shamed or mistreated anyway because they spoke up, then that's a pretty good indication that where they're working is not a good fit for them. I also tell them my own personal war story that there are worse things in the world than getting fired. And to me, the worst thing in the world that could happen to me is if I went along with something and somebody decided to report me to the state board and I lose my license. Because Lord knows none of us ever want to take that test again. And so I was pretty much put in a situation where I was being pressured to ignore things and go along with things. And of course, laws were being broken, not just rules, but state laws were being broken. And I just couldn't do it. And so when I was point blank asked some questions by the governing board of this employer, I told the truth. And immediately the next day got fired. Mm. So it was pretty rough there for a while till all the facts came out. And it took three months for all the facts to come out. And it was the worst three months of my life. But as soon as that three months was up, I had six job offers. So, and that's when I went to work at UT Tyler. So I just tell them that getting fired is not the worst thing in the world. 
if it is known to someone, especially someone who's unethical, that you're willing to compromise your ethics, they're going to come back to you again and again and again. And so it's just best to set those ethical boundaries. And they need to be careful because it can be very sneaky. It can start out as something that seems relatively harmless. But it's kind of like the thief that steals a nickel, then he steals a quarter, then he steals a dollar. Before you know it, he's stealing $1,000 a month. So you just have to be alert and on your toes and know it for what it is. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of the the saying, this too shall pass. And right now... At this point in our lives, three months feels like nothing. I mean, three months is nothing. But at that time in your life... Oh, I don't know, Mark. You're <laughs> sitting at home for month number <laughs> These months are getting pretty long. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And that's literally what I had to do. I had to sit at home for three months oh. because they had me under contract, and he would not release me from my contract. I was getting paid to sit at home, and he would not allow me, that my boss wouldn't allow me back in the building, the superintendent, who, the moral of that story was, when all the dust settled, he was fired, and he lost his license, and he never worked in public education again. Mm. But it was not easy for those three months. Remember, I live in a small town. I mean, and when the financial director gets fired at a company, what does everybody think? They did something wrong. And I was under a gag order. So it was pretty miserable sitting at home waiting for everything to come to light. The wheels of justice move slower than we want them to, especially when we're the ones being crushed by those wheels. But in the end, you can't think short term when it comes to ethical behavior. You have to think long term because it will be a long term way of life. It Mm -hmm. it is something that you practice and gets easier as you go along. The farther along in my career I got, the more comfortable I felt saying, I'm not good with that. I don't think that's what that says. But just starting out, you're scared to disagree with somebody who outranks you. And when you first start out, everybody outranks you. So I tried to give them lessons on how to say things, not just blurt out, well, I don't think you're doing that right. That's not going to win friends and influence people. But it is something that only really experience can help you with. But you have to know where you stand before you ever go out into the world. How much are you willing to compromise your own values? You know, that's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you said you try to give instruction on on how to bring it up and how to have that conversation. And you've obviously had to have at least a couple in your career, if not anymore. When you are a staff person, you know, everyone's above you. And not necessarily entry level, but first few years, you know, you know what you're doing. Well, there's always somebody above you, right? Yes. Yes. How do you well, bring that Well, first of all, your ethical framework is well-formed before you ever get to college. That's what parents are for. Parents teach right from wrong. What we try to do at college is teach them methodologies for evaluating where this falls on their own personal ethical spectrum and ways that they can analyze a situation so that they can decide how they feel about it. But it is hard. And depending on, to me, it was always how my boss responds when I bring this up is going to tell me more about him than it does about me. And sometimes you can bring it to their attention, and it may be that it was just an oversight. But I will tell you this right now. Indecision, not saying anything, is a decision. And therefore... 
if you wait till it's something really blatant to say something, they're going to say, well, you never griped about this before. You never had a problem with this last time. So don't wait until it becomes a big issue to speak up. And honestly, if you end up working for someone that wants you to do things that are unethical and against your code of personal conduct, you need to find another place to work because mm. you're not going to be happy there. That's very well said. Very well said. So how did you get through those three months? Because <laughs> <I mean, laughs> that is a okay. long time to be sitting at home. You're making me tell all the- my secrets now. <laughs> well, I live in a small town south of Tyler. I had to go to Tyler to buy groceries because I couldn't go in the grocery store in my hometown without seeing somebody that knew me. And, of course, everybody wanted to know what happened, and I couldn't talk about it. I basically stayed home for three months, mm-hmm. you know, and cleaned out closets and tried to decide what I really wanted to do now. And I had offers from two other school districts and decided I didn't want to go back into that world of public education where not all superintendents are bad, but a lot of them have really big egos. And I just wasn't a good fit for me because I want to follow the rules. I'm a rule follower. And you need to know that about yourself. If you are a rule follower and you're not happy unless you're following the rules, then you need to work somewhere that has more of a tendency to do that. So I applied for the job to create an internal audit department. UT System wanted every campus in their organization to have an internal audit department. And to me, that said a lot right there that they even wanted to have one. And it was still, I was so nervous the first year or two because I didn't know how it was going to be received when basically internal audit's job is to tell you what you're doing wrong. Well, you become really good at telling people what they're doing wrong by actually not using the word wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The better way to do this is, you know, or this guideline says we should do this. Here's how you can do that. You learn to be very diplomatic because what I didn't realize is a lot of people with PhD after their name also have big egos, and they kept telling me that that was their grant, you know, and they're, I said, no, I believe it belongs to UT Tyler. You're just the manager of this grant. This is not your money to spend as you see fit, and we're going to have to undo some of what you did. And, and then, I mean, you know, I would occasionally find fraud, some of it quite humorous, some of it not. And the case that actually really made me decide that I'd been doing this long enough, which I did that for 12 years before I moved over to faculty. One of the president's best friends at the university was committing fraud. And I told my staff, I said, okay, we got to get our ducks in a row about this. We have to be absolutely sure. The evidence has to be irrefutable because I've got to go tell my boss what his best friend, one of his, his best, his first hire that he ever hired on that campus who became a really good friend, what he's done. And I can't have a chance of being wrong. And I was hoping against hope, Mark, hoping against hope that we were wrong. But we weren't. Mm-hmm. So I had to walk into the president of the university's office and tell him what I had found. And I thought, okay, this is really going to tell me the measure of this man. And a vice president was sitting in there with us, the vice president who was over that area, and he said, okay, well, we got to decide what to do. And I'm like, I'm thinking, decide? What's there to decide? And he, he goes, do we let him retire or do we fire him? 
And I thought, oh, oh. thank goodness. Because I was scared to do I mean, And the man had tears running down his face. And I knew mm. it hurt him so bad. But I also knew he had a strong moral compass. He had only been president of the university a year when I went to work there. So I asked everybody I knew that knew him to tell me about him. Because I wasn't going to go to work for another unethical person who thought the university was their own little fiefdom. It was going to have to be somebody that really was a good person. Because that, that's mm-hmm. important to me. I can't work for people that I feel like are unethical. And he stood the test of time. And we went through quite a few, fraud, but that was the worst. And that broke my heart because this guy was everybody's friend on campus, but he was really close to the president. And he still did the right thing by making him leave. And it was hard on me. I felt like, you know, even though I didn't commit the fraud, I felt like the bad guy because I kind of ruined everybody's life. And believe me, there were faculty that would walk by me in the hall and say, well, who'd you get fired this week? Well, I don't fire anybody. I just report the facts, whatever they were. I didn't mince words. Here's what we found. But you know what? Once the president made it perfectly clear where he stood on malfeasance and, you know, financial abuse and state government, it really got a lot better. It really got a lot better because he had a no-excuse threshold. And that's why when I went to his office that day, I thought, well, now we're going to really see if he's going to be a man of his word or if he's going to backpedal on this. But nope, he was the same person he'd been for the entire time I worked for him, for which I was grateful. But just just to give you an example, when I went to work there, six months after I went to work, it seemed like that first two years, all I found was wrongdoing after wrongdoing. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? Well, apparently under the previous administration, it was like every man for himself. I mean, nobody, state money, state's got deep pockets, right? And We had a new director of fiscal plant, and whenever we had a change at the director level, we would do a departmental audit, and the very last question I ask at every audit is, do you have any questions for us? Do you have any other concerns that you would like to for us to look into? And he said, yes, I'd like to know what happened to our tractor. I'm like, what do you mean what happened to your tractor? He goes, I cannot find the, nobody seems to know what happened to our tractor in the bush hog. Well, I went back and looked at our testing of fixed assets, and, you know, you do a random sample. It had not fallen in our sample. So I pulled it. I pulled the tag, went and looked for it. wasn't where it was supposed to be. I spent three weeks trying to find this tractor. And the bottom line was three employees, the previous director, had sold them the tractor and the bush hog for 50 bucks. A tractor and a bush hog. That in Texas, by the way, is considered a motor vehicle. <laughs> You can drive them on farm-to-market roads, okay? And that's important because when they were found out and discovered, charges were pressed. It was a felony because it was a motor vehicle valued at over $5,000. And they did not understand what what the problem was because they bought it fair and square from their boss for $50. Other than that violates about, I don't know, 10 different regs in the Texas Administrative Code. Employees of state agencies are not allowed to buy anything from the state agency. It has to go to auction, and we can participate in the auction, but we cannot directly buy anything. Not to mention, it ended up having a book value of $8,500, and they thought $50 was a fair price. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, when I finally realized what had gone on, I went and told the president, I think we have a problem. And he said, well, you can get their address from Human Resources. Why don't you go out there and see if it's there? And he'd been in East Texas about 18 months at that time, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. 
he said, why not? I said, well, people get shot in East Texas for going in (laughs) other people's pastures. I'm not going to go look for this tractor, but I got the police to. And just to tell you how dumb criminals are, they hadn't even taken the property ID tag off the tractor. I mean, it was... So we recovered the property. We did not want to press charges, but the district attorney at the time was making a name for himself, so he pressed charges, and anyway, they pled out. We didn't go to trial, thank goodness. My whole career, what my goal was to not ever have to testify <laughs> in the court case, <laughs> and I managed to succeed at that, but it came close on that one, but they copped a plea and got it down from a felony, and <laughs> we recovered the merchandise. But we had a custodian that was just taking boxes sitting outside of people's offices all over campus. I mean, we had central receiving, but they would then deliver the boxes wherever they went on campus. And you could walk up and down the hall and recognize the Dell computer box, right? They all look like black and white cows. I mean, but we had so many things go missing. We had big screen TVs, a lot of tech equipment. But One of the things that they took was a replacement flagpole. This thing was huge. And I'm like, I just don't understand. And finally, we got the police to go out. We got a tip on our hotline. Police went out to his house, walked in. His little girl sitting there watching the big screen TV that was missing. The flagpole was still in the box out in the backyard. All this stuff. He hadn't even sold any of it. It was just sitting there. And his comment was, well, it was just too easy to take. Oh, my god! So, you know, like if we were going to be so dumb to leave it sitting in the hall, why shouldn't he take it? So, needless to say, procedures got changed after that. Wow. <laughs> you had to sign I, for things that were delivered by central receiving that were over a certain value. <laughs> you were their first internal audit director, yes. right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but it really did get a lot better. And that situation, the one that broke my heart, the employee in question had a gambling habit, and that's what had led to his his fraud. And so it was just doubly sad. And mm-hmm. at the same time, the dean's saying, I really need you to teach auditing. And so I had been teaching auditing just that one class. And then he said, I really need you to teach full-time. What do I need to do to get you to teach full-time? And I thought, you know... This is a good time. I love teaching this class. I felt like it was a good way to make an impact on future accountants and to help them make that transition from the university to the workplace. And I loved it. I loved teaching. It was wonderful. Well, I have three questions that I end every podcast with and need to get to those in a minute for time's sake. But there's one really, I want to circle back a little bit. There's one really practical item I want to talk to you about. I've been in recruiting for many years for accountants specifically. And sadly, I've had many conversations where someone came in to talk to me and it was after they had reported a fraud, you know, and they Mm -hmm. weren't at the company anymore. Either they got fired or they felt it necessary to leave. And inevitably, of course, an employer is going to want to know why you left your last employer. <laughs> you know, It's hard for them to talk about. It what, is. It is. And, you know, I was asked that question yeah. on my interview with the university. And I just told them point blank that I could not condone the fraudulent behavior of the administration. Of course, when you're applying for a job as the internal audit director, that's a good, good position to be in. But... <laughs> I mean, you know, you just need to tell them like it is. I mean, it really wasn't a good fit. It is difficult. And I worried. I worried that everybody 
would, that I went to interview, you know, would think the worst of me, that all they really wanted were the GC details of what happened. And that really wasn't the case. I think people are somehow afraid that they will be looked down upon by employers if they left their previous job because they weren't comfortable there with certain behaviors. And I just think you just have to be willing to, and you know, you don't, not in a judgmental way, you know, you don't ever trash talk, never trash talk your previous employer. But, you know, just say that you weren't comfortable with their current practices and you felt it best to leave. And that's about all you can do, Mark. I mean, I've been in that seat. I know how uncomfortable it is. I know how scary it is. But, you know, as usual, experience will teach them as they go farther down the line of their career that you don't need to be afraid for who you are. If you're a good person and an ethical person and you want to be a good accountant, that's nothing to be ashamed of ever. And you will become more comfortable being that. Thank you. That's really good advice because it is a hard item to talk about. It is hard. It's very hard. But I do think coaching is important, and I'm glad that they're talking to you about it because they have no idea how to answer that question because they've never had to before. So it is a good idea if you find yourself in that situation to get some coaching, either from another CPA that you trust, a mentor, before you go on the interview because you're going to be asked, why did you leave your previous employer? And if you aren't sure what's the best way to answer that, best thing to do is talk to somebody you trust about it. There you go. That's good advice. That's good advice. Yeah, inevitably people want to know some of the details, but then you have to walk a really fine line. You do. You do. You go into too many details. It's also unethical to talk about things if you're under a gag order. (laughs) Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, that's another issue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. How hard it was for me to be under a gag order. <laughs> That's like telling me not to breathe. They probably had to modify it a little bit. <laughs> oh, it was hard. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I do go into every podcast with the same three questions at the end. It gives us a lot of consistency, so we probably better get to those. Okay. First one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Well, that one is the easiest. And I can tell you that as a chairman of the Texas Society of CPAs, you attend the two swearing-in ceremonies that happen each year, and you sit up on that stage. You actually get the opportunity to address the brand-new CPAs. And then you get to sit there on the stage and watch them walk across and receive their certificate from one of the board members. Mm -hmm. And I had the seat right in front of they hand it to them. And I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It was so awesome. But what was absolutely amazing is I had eight students, past students of mine, getting their certificate at one ceremony and six at another. And seeing that come to fruition was what it was all about for me. And one of them had even petitioned the board to allow me to hand her her certificate. So I can say that was probably my most enjoyable and proudest moment in my career was seeing that I had helped, I had a little bit help helping these students become CPAs. You know, I'm just one faculty person, but it is something to feel like you have sent something out in the world that you help create. It's wonderful. And if anybody has 
ever had the opportunity or wants to go to the CPA swearing-in ceremony in Austin twice a year, if you have anybody from your firm going, you should go watch. And you should encourage your new CPAs to go because I'm not kidding you. Parents are even happier there than they are at graduation from college. (laughs) Everybody was happy. It was great because everybody knew what a struggle it was to get to that point. So it was a lot of hard work goes into that. And to see it come to fruition is just awesome. Yeah, those are special. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about it, the better, of course, because that's sort of how we learn. (laughs) Yeah, well, like I said, I have to learn things the hard way. But what I have learned over... Let's see, how long have I been a CPA? 40 years of being a CPA. We all have this little voice, and sometimes we argue with that little voice. And we say, no, that can't be right. You're wrong. No, uh -uh. I don't want that to be true, so it's not true. And you have to learn to listen to that little voice in your head because 99% of that time that little voice is trying to warn you about something. And Mm -hmm. there's been twice in my career that I did not listen to that little voice in my head and valuable lessons were learned, and unfortunately, those lessons came full circle, and the next time it happened, I listened to that little voice. It still wasn't easy, but sometimes what you think is happening and you think is going on really is, and it's hard not to talk yourself out of it. It's hard not to try to talk yourself into thinking something different. So listen to the voice in your head because we all have this instinct. We all have this intuition, and it comes from many years as an accountant and as a CPA. You really sharpen those, especially if you're an auditor. You really sharpen your intuition and your intuitive skills, but you have to listen to them. (laughs) It doesn't do any good to have all that experience if you talk yourself out of what you don't want to believe is true. (laughs) Thank you. Wow, that's a lot of insight. Yeah, my son has a name for it. He calls it his Jiminy Cricket. So we all have a Jiminy Cricket in our head. We just need to listen to him. (laughs) Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Oh, gosh. Well received that I actually listened to or received that actually followed. You could give me two. <laughs> well, you know, once again, some of us have to learn lessons the harder way, but they make us better in the long run. One piece of advice I was given was whenever faced with a dilemma and a, cho- a difficult choice where you didn't feel like there was any good answer. They were All options were going to be difficult. Make your decision and then picture it as a newspaper headline. And if it makes you go, it's probably not the right choice. <laughs> so always assume that everything you do is being recorded by somebody's iPhone because now that probably is true. And the other thing is listen to people who are ahead of you on this path of life. Because if they're trying to give you advice, it's not because they think they're smarter than you and that they think you're dumb or stupid or inexperienced. If they're spending the time and the air to give you some advice, they think it's something you need to know. So you should listen to them. doesn't mean you'll follow it, but you should listen to them. And I think you'll find more often than not there's a nugget of truth in all of it. Mm -hmm. So listen. Listen to the voice in your head and listen to the people who are trying to give you advice. 
Well, that is perfect to end the song, particularly for an episode on ethics. Yeah. <laughs> very applicable. Yeah. Very applicable. Well, thank you again for coming on. I have to tell you, I wrote this down from some of your early comments. You're the first person in a long time to use the term 13-column pad on the show. We haven't heard <laughs> okay. that. You can, I'm showing my age there, right? Hey, I, you know what? I kept one of those as a souvenir. I have it to this day in my office at this house. I sure do because, no, I had to take it in every semester to show my students because they didn't believe there was such a thing. That's a, a true spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, the original spreadsheet. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoy it. Well, that was our second interview with Kathy Kapka. A few of the takeaways I have from this were, number one, that the conversation about the economy and how a difficult economic situation really can affect ethical or, or rather unethical behavior. I had a gut feeling that that was the case, like I mentioned in the intro, but that discussion with Kathy really helped me put my finger on why it would be the case and it really helped me define it. And I appreciated that. And then another thing was the reminder to trust but verify. I think I mentioned this earlier. A good friend of mine says, locked doors keep honest people honest. And I think it's important for us to remember, not just as accounting professionals, but as business professionals, that when we put good controls in place, and we all know this, but it's not that we don't necessarily trust the individuals involved. It's just we don't want to put temptation out there that doesn't belong because we certainly don't want to put someone in a situation where they're doing something that they normally wouldn't do. There really was a lot of truth in the insights that Kathy shared with us today, and I really appreciate her being willing to come on the show again. If you found value in this episode, please share it out. We love getting new listeners. It not only helps us, but it helps them as well, because if you're enjoying the show, there's bound to be other people you know that would enjoy the show as well. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for the Where Accountants Go podcast. We'll see everyone next week. There's more to come.